Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. Madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun. On three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Andiamo, andiamo, siamo a Brussels, back after our week in Strasbourg. Back at the helm, another quiet week. Now, we decided to be a bit bold today and uh, launch our I4C Trouble with Daly and Wallace without any external help at all. So then there were two. We're here alone. You never know what we might get up to. What do you think? Well, we were actually, um, we were going to have Kate with us, but um, um, we didn't give her enough notice and she, she's... She actually went off to get stuff for the office and uh, hasn't got back. So here we are, home alone. I shall look at we'll soldier on anyway. So look at another quiet week. Uh, we had, uh, I'm really, you know, at a loss to know what the Irish media do if we weren't in politics, which makes us all the more determined to stay on as long and as long and to keep using our platforms and our voice because... God Almighty! The poor boys and girls that have nothing to do if they I, couldn't talk about us. I I keep I, I keep uh, recalling the people who told us that we'd never be heard from again if we went to Europe. Gas, yes, isn't we, it? Wouldn't, we wouldn't we wouldn't be getting as much attention if we were at home. I tell you, there's a great niche out there now for a journalist college that actually teaches people how to report accurately and not spin and cut and burn. And that's what we're seeing in Ireland. And look, it's with every passing day, it's given us more amusement to see the obsession with us. And I thought it was really brought home to me by the excellent Roger Casement school that I spoke at in Dunleary last week. And this is an annual uh, summer school dedicated to the memory of the wonderful Sir Roger Casement. Um, we, it was originally supposed to be a talk on EU, uh, EU militarism, which I'd promised um, PANA, Peace and Neutrality Alliance, that I'd do last year. And then obviously with the war on Ukraine, it turned into a discussion on the war in Ukraine and they put up Barry Andrews to have a debate on the issue. And I think for everybody who was there, it was just such an excellent event that we had. We were both given 13 minutes to open. Uh, the floor then was open for commentary and we got 10 minutes each to reply. And for many of the people there, they said it was the first environment that they'd had where they had a real discussion about the war, that it wasn't just sloganeering and hysteria about the big bad Russians uh, and the poor defenceless Ukrainians and that it was actually a nuanced and real discussion. And people found that incredibly beneficial where adults could sit in a room and discuss differences of opinion in how we might end the war, which obviously we are being currently accused of being worse than I don't know what. Putin himself clearly, uh, that it's all our fault uh, for simply having a different view to the political establishment in how the war can end, because some of those in the political establishment clearly don't want it to end. Well, which reminds me, right? I mean, um, 
Who would have ever thought that uh, we'd be vilified for fighting for peace and uh, the people that want more war uh, are really upset that we want peace and the agenda seems to be uh, escalate the war. Oh, we have to bait this Putin fella and it doesn't matter how many Ukrainians die. Mm. Uh, US and NATO, uh, now with the uh, subservient support of the EU and the EU European member states, they're prepared to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian. And uh, only today, the Americans have sanctioned 40 billion more in aid for Ukraine. Oh so it is, it's become very clear that this is a US-NATO proxy war. And... Uh, very sadly, uh, obviously, loads of those EU member states are in NATO anyway, but uh, it's it's terrible that this is what the EU has got to. And it was interesting. Um, there was um, reports from the media in Ukraine um, for, and seemingly uh, the, the pretty official right-wing press uh, in Ukraine and... Uh, they're, they're actually indicating that the West has pressured Ukraine to stop ongoing negotiations with Russia, um, which led to the collapse of the talks that were, being, that were going on in Istanbul, right, uh, in Turkey. Now, Boris Johnson seemingly made a surprise visit to Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, during which he allegedly discouraged Zelensky from pursuing peace talks in Turkey. And a recent report in the Ukrainian news outlet uh, quoting officials from the Ukrainian president's office claiming that talks between Ukraine and Russia have stopped due to pressure exerted by UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson during his unannounced visit to Kiev in April. According to the report, Johnson came to Kiev on a surprise visit, apparently to express solidarity and announce financial and military aid to Ukraine in its fight against Russian aggression. However, during his meeting with Zelensky, Johnson asked him not to continue with the talks which were going on in Turkey, asserting that Putin needs to be defeated. Mm. So Zelensky's public position on talks with Russia shifted dramatically following the visit. And only a few days before that, Zelensky had proclaimed that there is no alternative to talks with Russia. And he had declared the necessity of the talks even amidst the international outcry over the alleged mass killings in Bukha, which obviously we still don't, still don't know the truth about because we haven't had any independent investigation of what really happened there. So, I mean, how mad is this like? I mean, we have the, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, goes to Zelensky, goes to Ukraine and puts pressure on him not to stop the war. Hmm. It's very clear now that this is... The whole dialogue around the war has even changed now, where it's not about defending Ukraine. It's about openly now a proxy war against Russia and using Ukraine in that battle, which is incredibly dangerous, which, as you said, make the type of heavy weaponry that is pouring into Ukraine from uh, the US and increasingly from EU states. The This is serious, serious weaponry now that's piling in, which is only going to prolong the war. Uh, only going to destroy Ukraine more. Yeah, they'll hurt Russia as well, but at the price of killing and destroying a load of Ukrainians. And the idea that this is a legitimate foreign policy is just despicable. It really is that you would use a country in that way. Yeah, and I mean, uh, as I said, they don't seem to have any problem uh, to fighting Russia down to the last Ukrainian. They're putting so much arms in at this stage that you'd wonder if the Ukrainians will 
be able to use it all. Mm. And, and, and then and, what and happens with it Will they have the personnel to actually use all the arms they're getting? Mm. I mean, then this, is, this is a mad scenario. And I thought in that context it was really interesting and one of the points I made at the school actually was that obviously the dogs on the streets know that we have been demonised and vilified for speaking out for peace uh, but the Pope had made a statement pretty similar to ours uh, and I made the point in Dunleary that I first thought he was robbing my notes. Then I thought, oh my God, the poor fellow, wait till the Irish Times gets to hear about this. They'll call him a Putin puppet uh, or an embarrassment and a disgrace. But in any case, they didn't do that. What they did was completely and utterly ignore his statement where he has from the very beginning been forthright in his condemnation against Russia for the invasion. But he came out the other day and said NATO bears responsibility for facilitating the war. He talked about the arms industry uh, being using wars to test their weaponry. He talked about international interference causing the wars like in Yemen, Syria and so on. So it was a profound statement from a world leader. And given Given that they couldn't obviously call the Pope a Putin puppet, uh, they'll probably assassinate him now or something. But in any case, they uh, they just ignored his views, which to me was really scary. And I made that point in the debate in Dunleary. I think it's true to say that I won the debate. It was uh, very, I would say that not in an arrogant way, but just from the reaction of, of the crowd. Uh, a lot of people thought the simplistic goodies and baddies narrative wasn't good enough. But what actually was shocking about that afterwards was there were a tale of two reports. So madly enough, the Irish Independent did an account of the meeting and we were so shocked to see it, I suppose, as we've been so unused to old style reporting where the reporter reported what went on at the meeting. So he outlined what I said, he outlined what Barry said and he left it at that and people could make their own minds up. The Irish Times, which is absolutely unbelievable at this stage in its open war against us and against truthful reporting, to be honest, um, took a line out of context in the end of my speech when I was dealing with the importance of neutrality and how precious neutrality is. And they conflated that with my remarks at the start, which was about the causes of the war, and spun that into basically saying that I was blaming the Ukrainians for the war. Uh, when I very forthrightly was blaming Russia, but then put it in the context of NATO. My remarks about neutrality were simply and accurately that neutrality is a very precious thing and that we in Ireland should be the guardians of neutrality for people who want to join the EU. So that could be Ukraine in the future if they were to join, which, as Macron said, will, will take decades. I didn't see anybody slagging him either, but he's right. It's a long uh, process. But if they were to join, it could only be as a neutral power. Moldova at the moment is a proudly neutral power who's in talks with the EU. If they want to join the EU, do they have to give up their neutrality? And it was in that context, I said, that actually the giving up of Ukraine's neutrality was one of the reasons which I suppose um, is a background reason to the conflict that's on now. That doesn't mean I'm blaming Ukrainians or anything like that. And interesting, when their politicians made the decision to abandon their neutrality in the constitution, it was against the wishes of a majority of Ukrainian people at that time, according to opinion polls. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, look at, first of all, anyone that wants to know our position on all of this from the word go, it's available to them. And you can read what we said uh, at any stage. You can listen to it uh, without the, the Irish Times spin on it, mm. right? So, um, like, for example, we under 
at no stage, from the word go, we condemn the war. Uh, what Putin did is totally wrong. It's an illegal war. It's a, it's a criminal act to invade another sovereign country. And uh, Russia are completely out of order. For the Pope to outline that NATO actually bears responsibility as well is actually stating the obvious. And uh, it's pretty disappointing that the mainstream media who have uh, been cheerleaders for this war uh, failed to actually report in a good manner uh, what the Pope really said. And the fact that... uh, I mean, it's like as if if he had Mm. said the opposite... Uh, it had been probably all over the papers. Good watch, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. So but they obviously didn't like what the Pope had to say. And rather than go down the track of actually openly criticising the Pope, mm. uh, which they probably didn't want to do, and you can understandably why, uh, so rather they go silent on it. And all of this is all part of the same issue which has been done with us. It's to stop rational and reasoned dialogue about how this war can be stopped in a... Uh, an adult way, if you like. So it's all sloganeering and shouting and roaring and jingoism and nonsense, which when you scratch the surface, doesn't actually do anything to help the people of Ukraine. Which, in this. which, which, which reminds me of, of the, the actual irony of uh, us being accused of just because we actually might want to challenge the press for telling lies about us or media, other media for telling lies about us, the fact that we might want to challenge them. <laughs> We're accused of trying to silence the press where in actual fact we have right wing elements like the Irish Times in the media trying to silence us mm, exactly I mean, it's totally it's un- I kind of say to myself every day I say that George Orwell didn't know the half of it when he was doing his 1984 and all this kind of thing Big Brother is watching you and sort of night becoming day etc etc he was he was on the right track, but he, he was, was well but behind it, the curve. He was. It needs a new edition. Oh, he's not here <laughs> to do it. It does need a new edition. It certainly does. But no, look at, I mean, some Egypt feckin' senator, a fella that we'd never heard of then, got his 15 minutes of fame in saying we were uh, distributing disinformation. And that poor lad now, which we'd be better off now going and listening to the debate at the Dunleary School, where he might actually learn something about the war rather than repeating some nonsense that the Irish Times tells him. But anyway, such is life, such is the discount connect between the real world uh, and their little bubble. Isn't it interesting that uh, wannabe journalists or people who actually regard themselves as journalists or politicians actually would use us to actually get some attention for themselves? Hmm. I mean, I kind of worry about these people myself. Yeah, Asher, look at God help them. God God help them. them. But a story that they should have covered and a story that I suppose shows the real disconnect between the institutions of the European Union and its so-called proclaimed values and life outside is the continuing desperate situation in the Mediterranean where every day lives are being lost at sea. And we were both delighted to co-host with Stelius Kaluglu from the Greek um, Syriza party, who's in our left group in the parliament, An incredibly powerful event in the Parliament yesterday uh, on the migrant crisis and the criminalisation of refugees and humanitarian aid workers. Now, we've dealt with these cases before about our visits to Lesbos, about the cases of Amir and Akif, two Afghans who were um, incarcerated two years ago. We attended their appeal against their 50 year sentence for facilitating people smuggling, even though they were the people on the boat. Uh, We've talked about their cases before. You can check out our previous um, 
episodes if you're tuning in now for the first time. But this event was about the bigger picture and their case. Their lawyers were there, NGOs were there, and an Irish school was there on a visit who had taken up the case. So what were your impressions of the event, Mick? No, it was actually a great event and uh, it was brilliant uh, that the lads from the school and the teachers uh, were there as well. There was over 100 people at it, which is a bit unusual uh, for these type of events that was held in one of the um, the chambers uh, in the parliament. But I suppose um, what we were trying to do with the event was just to kind of lay out the stark reality of what's really happening and... The truth is that Greece has adopted one of the strictest anti-smuggling legislations in the European Union and it's criminalising people seeking refuge. And this is actually illegal. Now, they are allowed to do it because the the European legislation uh, from Brussels uh, isn't as good as it should be. It's called the EU uh, Facilitators Package, right? And... It's really obvious that the EU facilitators package uh, is not compliant with the UN protocol against the smuggling of migrants. And I mean, it's a bit shocking that that they don't bring it in line with it. And I mean, we are members, all the European uh, member states, all 27, are members of the UN, and yet they're ignoring the UN guidelines on it. And the UN High Commission for Human Rights has now come out and has recommended a revision of the EU legislation around this. But So what's happening is that uh, the... These people's rights are being totally ignored and Article 14 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights grants the right to seek and enjoy asylum from persecution to everybody that's that's fleeing uh, a situation of conflict or persecution. Hmm. And we are failing. We're actually drowning them. Hmm. We're forcing the boats back uh, closer to Turkey, away from Greece and for, uh, causing uh, thousands of them to drown. We're literally drowning people in the Mediterranean. And what I, I was really struck by, I mean, two of the, the young lads from the school in Dublin uh, spoke at the event last night, and one of them, he pointed out the hypocrisy. And he says, I don't understand, he said, um, why the media... And the public as well, well, obviously the public uh, are heavily influenced by the media. He says, why doesn't the media care about these people? He says, they care about the people of Ukraine, and rightly so, who are fleeing from a war situation. And it's great that Europe has been so accommodating for, to them. But he, he doesn't understand why they're treating these people differently. Mm. I mean, he, he, he was literally pointing out the terrible hypocrisy that's taking place. And... Uh, but when, when you put it to people, it's almost as if, oh, you can't say that. Oh, I mean, that's not, they're different. Oh, my God, what are they now? Well, that's, yeah, right. I think, I, I mean, mean. That's called racism. There was so, so much to the event. It was really, really powerful. And, you know, it's an awful pity that the media don't cover uh, these events because this is happening in Europe, our great bastion of democracy and values. And Jason, one of the guys, he's an international search and rescue activist. He goes out to sea every couple of weeks uh, off the Italian coast now where they're allowed to do it, picking up people in lifeboats. And he gave testimony to say 
that none of the member states now are carrying out search and rescue operations, that the Greek Coast Guard is actually taking people in, not processing them for asylum applications, but hiding them, taking their passports, taking their phones and bringing them back out to sea and literally dropping them into an inflatable boat with no uh, recourse to be able to get help and their bodies are being washed up. So we are literally drowning people. European governments are drowning people. And the law that allows people to be incarcerated, and there are nearly 2,000 people in court for this in uh, Greece. They're the second biggest group of prisoners. Their average trial lasted about 30 minutes and they average get about 44 years in jail. And it's because the law says they're facilitating illegal entry. So you don't have to profit from it. If you put your hand on the boat to stabilise it, you're guilty. So Jason gave great testimony. Mick is right. I mean, Kyle and Kai from Benevan College in Finglas were powerful and the whole crowd were lapping it up because for the Greeks who were there, the lawyers and some of the activists and campaigners, to see a, a bunch of lads just, you know, 17, 18 years of age, who had they had taken up the case of Amir and Akif in association with ourselves. They did a whole school project on it. They'd reached out to local politicians, to the media, telling them about what was going on in Europe. And for them to be there and exchange experiences with the Greeks for both sides, it was really powerful for them to see young fellas, young working class lads from the other side of Europe taking up their case was powerful. And I mean, the, the last speech rested with Hamid and We'd met Hamid a couple of times in Greece when we went there. He acts as a translator for the families and he's clearly been traumatised by both. He was one of the lads on the boat years ago and he now translates for people and he has to listen to their stories all the time and it relives his own crisis. But he gave a really powerful talk. He was crying. We all kind of were, I think it was powerful and he kind of said look I'm a human being as well like what makes me different and you know I just want to live I want to be contribute to society what, what's wrong with me kind of thing you know it was it was a brilliant event and we were so proud of the lads from Benevin being there their teachers and their parents and themselves should be really proud of them they were they were fantastic and of course the legal people and the activists that we work with on the ground there and continue to do it's it's huge it's brilliant yeah. But I mean, obviously, the 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 lads uh, in 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 the school they've actually been involved in the case and they've been they've mm. been uh, researching it and all, and it is just so uh, oh so refreshing mm. to see young lads from a school in Finglas with a more open minded approach than uh, much of the Irish media at home. Mm. It is just breathtaking. Mm. I, it was really emotional there last night and they were amazing. They were, they it were was. Wonderful. Well, it just shows the disconnect between their lives, both the migrants in Greece and young working class kids in Dublin and these institutions here, which are just a bubble of pampered privilege uh, and reinforcing their own so-called values, which actually, in terms of the lives of the people, are n nothing, you know. But look, at that's uh, you could build a, uh, a monument to hypocrisy here and call it the European Union. But in any case, we had to, you had your old friend Pascal in this morning, the Bell, uh, pa yeah, the bell morning. Pascal, Pascal Donoghue, all the way from Dublin, <laughs> uh, just to maybe show us, is the whole of the European Union hypocritical? Because Little Ireland was up, Ireland was being critiqued by the MEPs and Pascal was given a chance to tell the rest of the Europe about how brilliant Ireland is and how we're doing everything right. So you might be interested to hear about this one. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I always enjoy my exchanges with Pascal. And um, uh, while our politics are poles apart, uh, I always go home well with him uh, when in, our, in my time in the doll, despite disagreeing with most of what he had to say. Um, we, um, on a personal level, we always got on fine. Uh, no, today, uh, he was, now Pascal is the head of the Euro Banking um, Agency here in, in, the, in the EU. But today it was actually, he was coming in, well, he was actually, uh, he was on on computer from Dublin. He wasn't actually in the room, uh, but he was um, making a presentation on behalf of Ireland as the finance minister. And um, now, look at the majority of MEPs uh, think the the manner in which Ireland has um, managed its finances since the crisis. They think it's great. Um, not quite so great for about half the people of Ireland yeah. who are struggling to pay their bills, um, but. Um, the world of finance and GDPs and growth and all this sort of stuff is a, is a, is a, is a whole different game uh, which they all play uh, less impressive to the ordinary people so um, I was probably the only real dissenting voice there and, oh dear, um, unusual uh, for you <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so what we were, what I was actually dealing with um, was housing because housing was actually a big part of it and, and uh, um, there had been there have been critiques at European level and at IMF level about how Ireland is performing, and they're actually expressing concerns about the housing market and the fact that we have uh, we have we have failed to solve the housing crisis, whether people like it or not. We still have a dysfunctional supply of housing. We have we have huge homelessness still, and uh, I pointed out to Pascal that successive Irish governments' policy of promoting the private speculative market and global investors to supply housing has been a disaster. And I asked Pascal if he was concerned about the fact that housing is not affordable for most people in Ireland today. And I asked him, uh, was he concerned about the fact that rents are ridiculously high, especially in Dublin, and that they're off the Richter scale with most parts of Europe? And I pointed out to him that I'm renting an apartment in Brussels, in a nice area of Brussels, with about, I've over a thousand, I've over a hundred square metres, right, of an apartment with high ceilings, lovely apartment. I pay 1200 a month for it, right? It would cost me more than double in Dublin. And the rent is fixed for nine years. Mm. It cannot go up for nine years from the days I started the lease when I got elected to the European Parliament, right? I mean, this is just incredible, yeah. right, in comparison to what's happening in Dublin. And, and I put it to, to Pascal that uh, in the rent pressure zones in in Ireland, and Dublin is obviously one of them, you're only, allow, only allowed to put it up 4% a year, mm. right? 4% a year, right? And now this figure is directly tied to the return that the investors uh, would be looking for from their mm. investment, right? So, I mean, it is, it is to protect investor, uh, investors in the housing market in Ireland, the, the REITs and the vulture funds and all kinds of uh, investors is protecting their... Uh, concerns and ignoring the concerns of the ordinary people. So, I mean, we're we're making housing as a, a, we're turning it into an, an investment mm. instead of a home, and it's become incredibly difficult uh, for most Irish people to be able to afford to buy in Ireland. The average house price in Dublin today is over five hundred thousand euro. Now. A couple looking to buy an average-priced home, average, 
we're only talking about average priced home in Dublin, they'd need a gross annual income of more than 130,000. Yeah. Now, and who has that? Now, how many, what percentage of the Irish population uh, have that? Well, it turns out, according to uh, a document I was reading, they reckon that about 15% of the of earners in Ireland have that access to that kind of money. I'm even surprised it's that much. So what did Pascal have to say well, to you? It, because there's no social housing either. It's not just about buying. Nobody can afford to rent well, and there's it's, no stability. It's, it's, it's interesting that if you look at that money and and look at how many, what percentage of the people of, of the rest of Europe could afford to actually get that mortgage, it's only 6% could afford it. Whereas they reckon 15% in Ireland can, right? It just goes to show... Uh, the 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 division in Ireland mm. is even greater than it is in mainland Europe, and God knows it's bad enough in mainland Europe. But inequality is rising faster in Ireland than even in the rest of Europe, from what I can see. But I mean, I put it to Pascal that I've lost track of all the different housing programs they've announced. I mean, oh God, I, the, well, the latest one the, beats all. Oh, now. yeah. I mean, and they're now going to give developers 120,000 of a subsidy to build apartments. So you can add right? that on to the so, price. And, now. And, and I put it to Pascal. I said, Pascal, you can throw all the money and sugar you like at investors and developers. I said, they'll still do what they want to do. And that's fair enough, I said to him. They're private entities and they can do what they want and they can invest as they see fit, they can build as they see fit. But I said, what ye should be doing is building a lot more social housing, and you're not doing it. Mm. You're building some, but not near enough. But in his reply, of course, Pascal started, he listed off four projects that he could show me if I was back in Dublin. Mm. Now, uh, I'm actually going to look at the forum and see how many units are involved, mm. but the amount of social housing that the government in Ireland are prepared to build is minuscule in comparison to the need. And it's a huge problem. And you know what now? I mean, for the life of me, I don't understand why Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have been so terrible in dealing with the housing crisis, with the homelessness crisis. The fact that they, they, they are happy to oversee a completely dysfunctional mm. supply of housing and the only ones we're taking care of are big investors and yeah, yeah. real estate investment trusts and the whole lot. We're ignoring our own people. Well, it's absolutely shocking. It's part of our sort of loss of this idea of our national sovereignty or that the first responsibility of government is looking after the people in your own backyard because if that was their guiding force, they, their approach to the housing market would be different. Instead, they want to have all the right statistics for their European masters. They want to please the people in power, the big industry, the big multinationals, all the rest of it. Uh, and it's the people who pay the price of that. Really frightening stuff, actually. And just my last point on the issue, right? I actually think that the failure of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to deal properly with the housing crisis will be they're undoing at the next election. And I think that Sinn Féin are most likely going to become the largest party in the country after the next election. They're already the largest party in Northern Ireland now after the elections last week. But I can see Sinn Féin, uh, I know opinion polls aren't everything, but I'm convinced that Sinn Féin will be the largest party in Ireland after the next general election. And the, the, the primary reason mm. for me 
is the failure of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to deal with housing crisis. Well, no, you're totally right. And it's funny, like, because there's an obsession in the media across Europe about Sinn Féin's success in the North. And we've had a load of people saying, oh, what does this mean now? Is there going to be a united Ireland? Is there going to be a united Ireland? And in actual fact, I mean, I think you're right. The reason why people are voting for Sinn Féin is not because of a united Ireland in the south of Ireland. It's because they are sick of the political establishment over successive decades who failed to address issues, particularly uh, housing. Now, obviously, if they come to power north and south, it does mean the discussions around the idea of United Ireland are certainly put in a different place. But uh, it's I totally agree with you. It's not the motive force for the numbers behind them. But uh, anyway, look, our, me- our week started with the CEDA again, our Security and Defence, which is clearly one of the most active committees in here at the moment in these terrible war times. But regrettably for us, a lot of the meetings now are being held in camera, which means in private, which is really not good enough because we feel a lot of this stuff should be held out in the open but the only discussions that were aired in the open were the issues around uh, Ukraine, uh, the war on Ukraine and the danger of chemical nuclear um, accidents or you know actions or warfare whatever uh, and the whole atomic energy area which also dealt with the issue of uh, Iran and I thought it was interesting we had about five or six speakers on the nuclear chemical issue now they were all EU speakers which I think it's important to say and we'll find this in the discussion on neutrality as well that the EU is not a multilateral global organisation it's a geopolitical union of nations with their own interests. So it's not the same as, you know, the UN or anything like that. So these were EU spokespeople. But I mean, they were mixed bag enough in terms of the threat of the war. Uh, They dealt a lot with preparedness in the event of if there was a a chemical attack or so on. There was a lot of talk, obviously, about nuclear because there's a whole number of nuclear facilities in Ukraine. Chernobyl would be the one we would know about the most. Uh, But there's another big one whose name begins with Z and I'm not going to shame myself by trying to pronounce it. The Russians are in control of that one at the moment. Uh, They had taken over Chernobyl, but that has gone back to the Ukrainian authorities. But I thought the speakers dealt fairly enough, actually, with those yeah. issues. That yeah, the they f- did. And, and um, now, when they were talking about the fear of a chemical or a biological attack, they were saying, they were really only saying that, oh, Russians might do, the Russians might do it, the Russians mm. might do it, right? But when I put it to them, that, listen, war is horrific, war is terrible, and both sides always behave badly in war. There's never been a war where there was a, a goody-goody and a baddie-baddie and just one side mm. committing atrocities. And in, in war, bad things happen from both sides. And I put it to them that uh, given that Ukraine does have access to chemical and biological weapons, uh, that there is a fear that both of them might use them, you know? And I said, is that a concern for you? And in fairness to them, mm. when they came back in, they acknowledged the fact, yes, look, we're not ruling out the fact that... Uh, uh, Either side could use them, right? And uh, we're just making sure that we're prepared for them if it happens. And they're, uh, you know, Spain seemingly spent three, spent three million of these tablets um, mm. that you're supposed to take in the in the case of a biological attack. In, mm, in, mm, if mm. It was stuff was dropped on the city or a town, uh, but th- there was a second debate on 
just you know, Sorry. if we deal a few points in this and then we go into the second debate, do you mind? I just an I won't say anything in the second debate. No, I mean I thought that was interesting that Spain did say like they were dealing with a lot of help from member states that came in, but I mean you're right. They were very balanced. I mean, they dealt with the issue in the context that the MEPs were much more, oh, the Russians are going to, you know, set for, you know, explode a nuclear plant. They were saying, no, they're not. But obviously um, they said, we don't know. They said, we, the risks of an accident, you know, an act of war in a country where there's nuclear facilities, the danger of accidents, the risk of an accident happening is obviously escalated and that that risk was high. Um, they were kind of at pains to say they didn't think there was going to be a deliberate nuclear attack. But at the same time, they had to acknowledge that if Russia are being backed into a corner, the only way they're going to respond is, I suppose, higher. Uh, and I did think that their discussion on uh, the biological issues were interesting because we know in the early stages of the war, this was dismissed as sort of... Um, Russian disinformation, that there was no biological facilities run by the West or the US in Ukraine. Now they, they acknowledge that, yes, there is, but they say they're benign and they're transparent. They're nothing to do with military use. But as you say, Mick, if they're there for any action at all, they can be turned into military use. So that that's the fear. But uh, there was a second topic, and I know this is an area that you've done a huge amount of work, the um, uh, Atomic uh, Energy uh, Agreement and Iran. Yeah, well, obviously, um, the, the the Director General uh, of the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, was before us uh, in the second session. And uh, I find him a really impressive mm. guy. Um, I've, you know, he, he's at pains to stress that I, I have no flag. Yeah. He says, um, I'm working for an international organisation. And he says, I'm, uh, my job is to hold everybody to account. And... Uh, we go in, we inspect, we analyse and we report. He says, mm. that's our job. He says, it's not our job to take sides. Mm. And we're doing our job as well as we can. I, 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 I've, I've come across him a few times and uh, I find him pretty impressive. And I, I mean, I remember the last time he was in, I, I put it to him that uh, isn't it a big, a big uh, disappointment that Israel, for example, refuses to sign up to the IAEA uh, it's like as if they're pretending they don't have nuclear weapons, but of course they do have them, right? Mm. Uh, but Israel is totally lawless. And he was damning of Israel's refusal to join the, the organization. That means that the, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, they're not allowed then to inspect in Israel. Mm. Now, they are inspecting in Iran, right? And, you know, and he, he was critical of some things about Iran, and uh, he was pretty vocal about it, but I I, I find him pretty fair. Mm. And obviously, Iran is is crucial at the moment because the JCPOA talks are reaching uh, a climax. Now, for those of you that don't know what the JCPOA is, it was a joint agreement formed between the US, Europe, the Russians, Chinese, Iran. They were all in on it, and uh, it was it was a deal to stop. Uh, Iran from developing nuclear weapons and uh, the sanctions were to be lifted in return uh, with Iran and uh, it was a great deal and to their credit the European Union played a very positive role mm. in getting the JCPOA operational back in 2015 and in fairness to Obama uh, he played a good role in it as well now uh, 
Trump obviously came along and withdrew from the agreement. He just threw it in the bin, completely lawless. Mm. And so there's been an effort uh, since Trump lost power. There's been an effort to get it back on track. And talks have been going on ever since. And they're difficult, right? Mm. And now, I would have thought a couple of weeks ago that it was a, it was an absolute cert that the JCPOA was going to be bought back on track. Um, I'd be very concerned at the moment. Uh, the last couple of weeks uh, haven't been positive and there's a number of issues at play. It appears, first of all, I mean, uh, Raphael Rust, the head of uh, the IAEA, was at pains to stress yesterday or on Monday that as far as he was concerned that Biden wanted it to happen and that uh, he wasn't talking to Biden himself, but he said he'd been talking to Blinken and to Jake Sullivan two of uh, Biden's main men uh, around this area. And he says that the uh, the instructions from Biden were to try and make it happen. But other things are at play, and mm. I'm not so sure that Biden is responsible for them. Um, the Israelis seemingly mm. are definitely involved. Israel is so anti-Iran that it's mad. And Israel wants, would like Iran to disappear off the map mm. and Israel does not have a rational approach to Iran not even interested in peace uh, it's such a rogue international player at this stage Israel is absolutely lawless mm. and you have countries and the Europeans in fairness to them are really keen for the JCPOA to be brought back into operation but you have the likes of the Israelis fighting tooth and nail to stop it and now there's a new, a new element now as well and um, seemingly the Americans uh, want the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, right, the, the Iranian uh, military body, they want them to remain on the, on the terrorist list. Iran are insisting that they're lifted off it. Um, but my understanding is that Biden actually doesn't have a problem. He, he, Biden has said in the past that he didn't really have a problem with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps being taken off the terrorist list because he says they're on other lists anyway and they kind of haven't covered anyway, more or less. But it's, it's, a, it's a big issue for Iran. And, uh, but there's forces at play now uh, to try and scupper the JCPOA coming back on track. And uh, it's really concerning. But uh, and this talk about you know, oh, they found ancient material on three sites from years ago uh, that hadn't been declared by Iran. What is that? Is that a f- like what's I, that about? He, I'm I'm not sure. But I yeah. mean, uh, if if Raphael, the head of the IAEA, says that they found it, um, I'd be inclined to believe him. Hmm. Right? Um, I find him an honest broker. Um, now today. We were supposed to have a discussion uh, at the Foreign Affairs Committee today with Enrique Mora, and he's the Deputy Secretary General of the European External Action Service, and he's the main uh, point man for the European Union on the JCPOA talks. Mm. And and he was to be in the Parliament here today for a discussion on, on Iran, and I obviously would have had speaking time on it, and I was really looking forward to it. It was cancelled at the last minute, mm. which is a bit... I don't know. But anyway, it turns out that he's actually in Tehran. Uh, so hopefully. 
Yeah, I mean, look at, I mean, the, the sites that were, I mentioned anyway, are ancient sites. So whatever the history of them, and if they weren't declared, they're not acted, they're ancient sites. So, uh, Lucas, let's hope that he does good work in Tehran, that they can get this back on track. It really would be regrettable if this can't be uh, concluded. But I think you're right, the hand of Israel is... Uh, stirring the pot behind the scenes and uh, powerful influencers in terms of US policy. So we can only hope that the voices of reason, uh, at least least in this instance, might be heard out. Yeah, and the voices of peace in this instance, Mm. given that uh, peace has been drowned out uh, Mm. in terms of the Russian-Ukraine war. um, Anyone that wants peace uh, in Asia... Uh, will want the JCPOA back on track. Absolutely. And look, at you can report next week, maybe the meeting would be reconvened. So we hope for the next week that that may happen. So, arrivederci, Brussels. What do you think? Ciao, ciao.